at this time and turn with me in your Bible to Judges chapter 2, starting in verse 6. Judges chapter 2, starting in verse 6. Judges is probably about two-fifths into the Bible, and if you have to turn to the table of contents, um, you won't be judged. I did this week as well, so... So we're going through the entire Bible, and I still had to look it up this, this week. Judges chapter 2, verses 6 through 23. And this is going to be a long one, but we're going to read it together just to get the full picture of what's going on. Uh, God's people have been delivered out of Egypt, and they've come into the promised land, and yet they're still struggling. Uh, Joshua, as we're going to see here, is about to pass away, and a new generation is going to emerge. But let's pick it up in Judges 2, starting in verse 6. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath Harris, in the country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served Baals. And they abandoned the Lord and the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to their plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies." Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Verse 16, then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who had afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, Because this people have transgressed the covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them whether they take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. May God bless the reading of this word. You may be seated at this time. Uh, 
I know by reading that scripture, uh, it may not seem as if this morning's sermon is going to be all about grace, but I promise you that it is. And uh, as we're doing this, I just want to really point out uh, very clearly that uh, we have a lot of volunteers right now as we're gathered together and hearing the word of the Lord preached who are serving in various different capacities. We have people preparing food back there uh, while we get to sit in here and kind of study God's word. And so uh, let's be thankful for them as they're getting the meal for us that we're going to share after service. And, um, you know, if, if you hear some sound, just know that's your chicken being prepared for you. Um, we also have kids volunteers, people who watch our kids every single week, people who can't gather with us because they're watching our kids and loving on them. And so I always want to highlight those wonderful acts of service because it really, really helps our church as we gather in here together. But I thought I would start this morning, because uh, I'll be honest, this is, a, this is a tough book in the Bible. And if it seems tough, um, if it seems tough to walk through the book of Judges, and if it seems depressing, to be honest, it's, it's because it kind of is, right? Um, in my mind, having read through the Old Testament, we're going all the way through it, I think you could make the case that the book of Judges might be the darkest days of the Old Testament. And maybe in all of the Bible, with the exception of when Christ was crucified. I mean, this is a very, very dark time in Israel. There's not a lot of hope. There's not a lot of laughter. There's not a lot of prosperity. It's just struggle after struggle after struggle. The book of Judges is like the Wild West. There's so many terrible things happening. And so maybe to kind of break that tension and really get us back to God's grace, I thought I'd start with a very lighthearted story that, you know, was really meant a lot to me this week. I am... Uh, at my house, and maybe you're like me, um, you know the day when your trash is picked up like every single day, right? And um, my trash pickup guy comes really, really early on, uh, on Thursday morning. And so I have this schedule where what I have to do is I have to go and make sure my trash is put out at my front yard um, by Wednesday night. Otherwise, I might miss it early in the morning. And yet we had a problem this week because we had some people over and it was a lot of fun, but I forgot to put my trash out. And I heard that fateful sound that I know all of us in this, uh, with our first world problems can relate with, where it's, it's, you know, early in the morning on the day your trash pickup is there, and you hear the, you hear like the sound of the trash guy, and you're like, I didn't put my trash out, right? And so I heard that horrible sound, and I hear like the, and he's like the, you know, he's got like the arm that's like picking up your trash, you know? And so I heard that, but, and so then immediately in a panic, I ran outside because the thing about it is when you hear the sound, sometimes he's like on the other side of the street, you know, and so he's about to come around to you so you're still safe, or maybe he's not gotten to your house yet. And so I ran outside, and I don't, I don't know if I was even fully dressed, but I ran outside, and I get out there, and of course, he's already passed my house, and if you know me, I live three houses off of Antoine on a pretty busy street, so um, he's at the very last house on the end of my street, and he's already missed me, Right? And this is going to sound like really weird, but it's a completely true story. Like, as he's picking up the trash on that last house, and I'm thinking I've missed it, which is really bad because our trash was already overflowing, right? Like, he needed to get this, like, taken care of, right? We have a lot of trash for two people. I don't know why that is. But um, anyway, so uh, he's doing the last trash can, and I'm telling you, like, the last one he's doing, like, the arm keeps going like this, right? You know? And he's taking this like really, really massive amount of time to finish this last trash receptacle. And maybe I'm like hyper-spiritualizing it, but I was like, maybe this is like divine providence of giving me time to run my trash out there, right? And so like, literally it was just like forever. He's just taking, like, I'm like, maybe something's stuck in there. I don't know what it was, right? And so 
you know, just uh, nothing to lose at this point. So I decide to go get my trash and I run it out to the front of the yard, right? And he's two houses behind me, right? So I run out there. I get my trash in the front of my house, my big receptacle. But at this time, he's already finished getting the last house. And he's already proceeded to be literally halfway in the middle of Antoine, true story, in the median, blocking traffic, trying to turn out, right? And so I run out there and just this courage came over me, you know, the spirit of the Lord or something. And I, I was, I'm like waving him down in the middle of my street, telling him to come back to me, right? And he's not seeing me, you know, because you can see him like in like that rear view mirror on the side. You can see, you know, he doesn't see me. But I'm like waving, I'm like in the middle of the street. My neighbors probably think I'm crazy, you know. But this is, this is my life, you know. And so I'm, I'm jumping up and down and I, I see him like, like looking. And all of a sudden he does the wonderful thing where he's like, like he sees me, you know, like where they, they can see you in the rear view mirror. And he sees me. And there's this moment where he's like, what am I, am I going to go back for this guy, right? And so he sees me, he pauses for a moment, literally in the middle of Antoine, like blocking traffic that median thing, right? And he does the wonderful thing where he like throws it in reverse and puts his hand on the back, you know, and starts backing it up for me. And literally, he, you know, you know how big these trash trucks are. He backs it all the way up like a hundred feet to my house, complete reverse, and pulls over and like dumps my trash. And the reason, the reason why I, I tell you this story is because whenever he came and got my trash, I was just, I was so grateful that he had done this for me. So I walked over to like where he was, right? You know, he'd already come back for me just to say, man, thank you so much. That's so, such a kind act of you. And his response was literally this. He said, he's like a middle-aged man. He's like, man, ain't nothing better than grace. That's what he said. Ain't nothing better than grace, you know? And it was encouraging because, you know, it, it was funny. I wasn't sure if it was like a, like a sly Christian line, you know, like he was trying to throw in there, you know, like, like, like I'm blessed or something, you know, the things that we do, trying to let people know we're Christian even though we, we don't want to, you know, we're trying to throw it under there a little bit. And it was just so nice. But it, it, was, it was funny because really what, what grace is when you think about it, grace is getting what you uh, don't deserve after you failed. Like grace is getting the prize after you have failed, Right? That's what grace is, right? And we talk about that in, in the Christian world, and we, we think we know what grace is, right? But grace is being rewarded after you failed. It's being given the prize of success even after you didn't do what was required to get it. And a lot of times in America, and maybe I'm wrong on this, I think we have this, like, entitlement, right? Where we think we've worked hard, we're Americans, you know, we drive trucks, you know, we're hard workers, and we kind of think that we get the things that we deserve. And yet as Christians, we are a people of complete grace who walk around in this world thankful. Not because God loves us because we've been perfect people. But because God loves us simply because he is a gracious God. And I say that because if I had to sum up the entire book of Judges, this is what I think you need to know. The grace of God is unfathomable. The grace of God is unfathomable. I looked up the definition of unfathomable, and I love this. It says, incapable of being fully explored or understood. And the reason why I say this is because if God can be faithful to his people in the book of Judges, 
And if you read through this book and you see some of the darkness and the depravity and the evil that happens in this book and you walk out of there saying God is still going to be faithful to his people, it immediately lets you know God will be faithful to us no matter what. God is always willing to take us back if we will turn to him. God is always willing to remake us and renew us, and we can never out the grace of God. God was being gracious to Israel in the book of Judges, which is essentially the 300 years in between Israel entering the promised land with Joseph and then God appointing kings, as we're going to see next week. So it's this 300-year period that most of us don't know all that much about, to be honest. But it's a time in which God was raising up judges to save his people because Israel was in the promised land. And this is the crazy thing. They're literally in the promised land, and they're still turning to idols. They're still turning away from God. The book of Judges is literally, it is all about lust, murder, lying, disobedience, and idol worship in the promised land. In the land flowing with milk and honey. They got to this place that they wanted in the wilderness, right? They said they didn't love God in the wilderness because they weren't in the promised land, but then they get to the promised land and they just do all the same stuff in the promised land. And yet God is faithful. Because every time in the promised land they, they, they turn to an idol, they, God will allow an enemy to conquer them. But then whenever they cry out to God, like every single time, God raises up what is called in the Bible a judge, or in our vocabulary, a a deliverer, or a a rescuer. He raises up a person, much like Moses, much like Joshua, much like Abraham. He raises up different judges amongst the people to deliver the people. Judges were people raised up by God to deliver the people of Israel out of various times of oppression. But there was this pattern that kept happening, right? Right? Israel would be oppressed, they would worship false gods, God would enable, or not enable, but he would allow a foreign enemy to come in and conquer them, they would cry out to God, God would raise up a deliverer or a judge to save them, the deliverer would conquer the army, things would be well, there would be rest in the land, but then eventually that judge would turn to idols, or turn to sin, or would turn away from God every single day time. And in our modern day, I can't think of maybe any better way to explain this or describe this than the way I think that we oftentimes look to presidents to satisfy us. And, you know, if you've been watching the news or you've been following, I I mean, in my lifetime, I don't think I've ever seen a more contentious uh, election cycle for the presidency. I mean, it's contentions, and there's enemies, and in the same way, kind of all of us look to whatever, whoever our candidate is as kind of like our deliverer or our judge, the person who we're going to send to Washington, D.C., and then when they get there, they're going to restore rest in the land, and whenever my candidate gets in the office, there's going to be like a lot of, everyone's going to have a great job, right, that pays at least $100,000 a year, and there's going to be no person left hungry, and we're going to be a very prosperous nation, there's never going to be any terrorist attacks, and it's going to be perfect when our candidate gets in there. And yet we've seen over and over and over and over again that every president that goes into office, they say every time they leave office, no matter how like they are when they get in there, their favorability rating every single time they leave is under 50%. 
And a candidate that once started with so much hope and prosperity ends up in distress. I love the images of presidents before and after, and so I put a few of these up here for you. This is Abe Lincoln. This is before and after. This is what the Civil War will do to you, okay? This is him before and after. This is Franklin Roosevelt, and you've got to give him a little bit of break because he served 15 years in the presidency, so his isn't as bad. Next one, Ronald Reagan. He's got charm, yes, but it took a toll on him for sure. Next one, president. This is a pretty rough one. George Bush, he was only president for four years, and this is him before and after. Next one, Bill Clinton once again got the charm, but he definitely went through a lot. Next one. This is the worst one. Poor George W. Bush, man. Eight years in the presidency, right? Goes into office, leaves office, things are not going well. And the last one is, of course, President Barack Obama, our current president. And he still has a year to go. So we'll be waiting for his final picture the day when he leaves office. But it's kind of the same thing in the book of Judges. And yet in the midst of everything, God always remains faithful. Turn with me to Judges chapter 6, if you have your Bible this morning. It's a few chapters beyond our scripture reading. And uh, before I really drive this main point home and get to where I know we all want to get to this morning, which is Jesus, I want to cover probably the two most well-known judges, because I don't just want to generalize. I do want to give you some specifics and some stories. And What you need to know about Gideon, which, by the way, that's an awesome name. We need to bring the name Gideon back, okay? Y'all need to start having babies and naming them Gideon. Um, I would do it, but if I named my daughter Gideon, that'd be really weird. So I'm not going to do that. But her name's Molly, by the way, so I'm excited. I can't wait to meet her. Two months, she'll be here. So cool. Um, But God raises up this guy named Gideon. And as we're going to see, Gideon was like a weak dude, okay? He was not a strong guy. He wasn't the, the candidate you would think who would save the people, And God calls um, Gideon to save Israel uh, from the oppression that uh, that the Midianites had brought upon Israel. And the Midianites were notorious for really kind of one main thing. And these guys were horrible. They were like the biggest trolls you could imagine. The Midianites would wait for Israel to like plant the crops and raise the crops and raise the, the livestock and the cattle. And they would wait for them to go and gather all of like the produce and the wood and everything. And when everything was fully ripe and ready, the Midianites would come in and plunder everything. Okay, that's what the Midianites did, right? They bullied Israel continually. They stole all their stuff. And keep in mind, once again, I think it's hard for us in our modern day to understand kind of why things were the way they were back then. But think about this. Whenever the Midianites would come in and steal all of Israel's stuff, they had nothing to feed their children, okay? I know we think, who cares if someone raids a a crop? This was how they ate, okay? Kroger was not there. Walmart was not there. If you stole livestock, cattle, crops, and wood, they'd be freezing in the night. They would have no food. People would die. Famine would come. This was a horrible time. And so Israel cries out to God in this period of judges because they're being oppressed by these people called the Midianites. And then in Judges 6, verses 11 through 18, let's see how God calls Gideon to save them. It says, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under, get ready for these names, Terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Bezrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. Okay, he's hiding it because they keep stealing it. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? 
And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If I have now found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And the angel said, I will stay till you return. And long story short, the angel stays there. He proves God's faithfulness. And God raises up this really, really weak guy named Gideon to save God's people. The first thing God calls uh, Gideon to do is he sends him out to destroy this altar to this false god called Baal, right? Baal was a false god that a lot of people worshipped back then. They made altars to him, and he tells Gideon to go destroy it, right? So he does that, and then everyone doesn't like him. And then God tells him to go get an army of people, right, to go fight against the Midianites. And so Gideon goes out and gets 32,000 people to fight in this army, right? And then God says, Gideon, you have a problem. Your army is not the right size. And usually that means that you don't have enough people, right? Usually having a big army is never the problem, right? And God says you got too many people. So God dwindles the army down to 10,000 people, right? I guess he's going the more like the Alamo direction. You know, he's trying to, you know, he's like, we're going we're gonna to have a small army and do a great thing or something, right? And then there's 10,000 guys and God's like, get in it's still too big, right? Your army is too big because God wants the glory for himself, right? And so it's this really cool moment where God tells uh, basically the remaining 10,000 troops to go down to this river to get some water. And so they all go down to the river to get some water. And basically God says, whichever guys, whenever they draw up water, whichever guys go down, instead of putting their face all the way in like the river, right, which is, you know, if you're a troop, right, or you're, you're, you're in the army, right, you can't do that because like there's always enemies all around you, right, it's kind of unsafe to do. He says, whichever guys go down, instead of putting their face all the way in the water, drink water, but they get the water, they cup it with their hands and bring it to their mouth, those guys are going to be your army, I guess because they're good soldiers or God wants to use those guys. The problem is only 300 of them do that, right? So it was 32,000 Now it's 10,000, and now it's down to 300. But by God's grace, he empowers those men, and they defeat the Midianites, and all is well, and Israel is saved, and you would think that everything's going to be good. But then this is where the downward spiral begins to happen, because what happens is Israel goes to Gideon and says, we want you to be our king. You're an awesome warrior. You saved us. You should be our king. And Gideon says, no, I'm not going to be your king. The Lord your God should be your king. But then this really weird thing happens where like after he already refuses to be the king, he says, but even though I won't be the king, if you maybe want to give me some of your spoil from the victory, maybe I can have it and walk around with it and play around with it or whatever. Maybe if you want to give me some of that and make it available to me, you know, that might be a nice way to honor kind of what we've done, right? And the Bible says that the spoil that he gained became a snare to him and his family. It garnered too much of their focus. They, they turned from the Lord. And then Gideon passes away, and Israel turns back to false idols. And then Gideon's son assumes power, and he's just a really bad guy. We don't have time to go into all those details. 
And so this keeps happening, and it keeps happening. God saves the people, and they fall away. And then we come to the last guy we're going to look at this morning, and the twelfth and final judge. His name was Samson. And Samson's a guy that you may have heard of, right? So once again, 11 other judges have been raised up, 11 other failures, right? God saves them, they go right back to where they were. And yet Samson was different because this guy was a complete pro, right? Samson didn't have an army, he just fought everybody by himself, okay? Like Samson was just a complete beast, right? Whereas if Gideon was maybe like a war general or commander, think like MacArthur or something, um, Samson was like the Hulk, okay? He just went out and fought everybody by himself. Like he would, he would just get in these fits of rage and he would just demolish everybody. It was like so cool. I loved reading about this this week. And in the same way last week, James described Joshua as like the mystic warrior, right? I, I thought I'd come up with a name for, um, for Samson, right? And this is probably not any good, but like the, the only way I could describe Samson was he was a passionate, tortured soul, impulsive warrior, okay? That, that was Samson. He's a passionate, tortured soul, impulsive warrior. Have you ever known somebody in your life who was so gifted, was such a great leader, was so talented, was so smart, was so charismatic, and yet they just couldn't seem to put that stuff in the right direction? You ever know anybody like that? You know, like they, they could have been the president. They could have done great things for the Lord. They could have done so many great things in their life. And yet they just kind of were always veering off, right? That was kind of Samson, gifted, powerful, awesome leader. He was passionate. Like when he was following the Lord, he was like the greatest saint. But then when he was going after women, he was like the greatest womanizer. I mean, he was just like veering off constantly. I mean, he was all over the place. Like one minute he's loving the Lord and the next minute he's like breaking multiple commandments at once. I mean, Samson was just, he was all over the place. He was a passionate, tortured soul, impulsive warrior. And Samson was known as the last judge for fighting against the Philistines, okay? And the Philistines are like a historic and famous enemy of Israel, right? You know David and Goliath? Goliath was a Philistine, okay? And so um, one of Israel's worst enemies, the Philistines, were awful, horrible people. Think of like ISIS or something, just really, really bad people, right? Always attacking God's people, taking their produce, taking their women. I mean, really horrible situation. And so God raises up Samson, to uh, alleviate Israel's oppression from this group. And so then Samson has this really great idea that since he's fighting against the Philistines, I guess he thinks he's going to go and now marry a Philistine woman, okay? Like he has this plan, right? He's like a hopeless romantic, right? So he marries this Philistine woman. And I'm going to be honest, as you start reading this part in the book of Judges, one commentator mentioned, just notice that like God isn't as active in this part of the book, right? Like it's almost like these people are just like acting like on their own, like, like veering off and it gets really bad. And probably for me, like, like the lowest point in this whole book was when Samson gets into it with his wife. They part from each other, but then he wants her back. He goes back to her. But the Philistines, they won't let her, him have her. And eventually they kill her and they kill her family and everything is destroyed. And Samson like freaks out and like kills a bunch of Philistines. And then he kind of gets himself back collected. But then he decides, you know, at this point he's going to go and now date and marry a prostitute. Okay, so this is Samson, right? You never know anybody. It's like some people, like the way they choose who they're going to date is like, who is the worst person I could date? And they always seem to go date that person. You know, like a lot of people are like that, right? Samson was totally like that. And long story short, he dates Delilah, this prostitute. The Philistines get a hold of him. 
Um, he tells her some secrets that supposedly his strength lies in his hair when in reality it lies in the spirit of the Lord, but it's kind of a symbol, you know. And he, he lets her in on the secret and she cuts his hair and then the, the army comes in and he's lost his strength and so they take him and it ends really, really badly. And then let me read you the last verse of Judges. Verse 25 of chapter 21. After all of this, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And this week, I I wanted to build this up a little bit. I didn't want to hide from the tough parts of the book of Judges. I wanted to lay them before you. Because I think what we begin to see in the book of Judges, and thankfully, this is just, you know, we're only two-fifths into the Bible. This is not how it ends, right? It gets a whole lot better. Praise the Lord, right? Just be thankful you didn't live in the time of Judges. But what we begin to see here is this amazing reality that the grace of God is unfathomable. Because every time Israel falls away, God never leaves them and he never forsakes them. And God is always down to do a redemptive and a beautiful work in them if they will simply turn to him and trust him. If God will not just give up on his people because of what happens in the book of Judges, you can bet yourself that God will never give up on his people. We begin to see that God is going to be faithful to his promise to Abraham that through your line, through Israel, I am going to redeem and renew this world. God had every right in the book of Judges to leave them, to forsake them, to never come back, to give up, to, to wipe away the earth and to flood it again. And yet God is sticking firm with his people and he will raise up leaders and he will raise up leaders and he will save them and he will save them as he teaches his people to lean fully on him. The grace of God is unfathomable. And here's what that means for your life today. Here's the practical application for your life. And that is that our past failures have no control over what God can do through us today. Your past failures have no control over what God can do through you today. For those who lean into the grace of God, for those who trust God, every day is a beautiful and wonderful brand new day of grace. And the problem is so often we let the past define who we are in the present. And we say, I can't because of this thing in the past. I can't because I did this. I can't because I'm this way. And the boldness of the Christian faith is this idea that today, in Christ, you and I are wiped clean. That we can do literally all things through Christ who strengthens us. Anybody who reads the book of Judges can come out of there saying, look, God can do a great work through my life. We begin to see that God's grace begins to extend beyond our failure. That we are a people of grace because we have been saved by the persistent grace of God. And the closing idea this morning, and and where Jesus really begins to make sense in all this, is that Jesus 
is the perfect judge and deliverer for all humanity. Jesus is the perfect judge and deliverer for all humanity. You notice in the New Testament how Christ is often referred to as a king. And that was kind of used as a symbol to signify the kings in the Old Testament, how they were supposed to be the ones that were going to save and bring order to Israel, and they were going to renew the world. Jesus is the perfect Adam. When Adam fell, when he sinned in the garden, the, the failed human, Jesus became the perfect human. Jesus is the perfect judge. Jesus is the perfect king. And all of the failure of all of God's people finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. That when Jesus came, the true deliverer for all humanity was finally here. That Jesus was God's final and eternal word. That sin was finished. That death was was finished. It no longer plagued us and ruled us as humanity because Christ has come. He's the perfect Adam. He's the perfect Moses. He's the perfect Gideon and Samson and King David and Solomon. And all of their failures are made right by what God did in Christ. We had been unfaithful, but Christ was faithful on our behalf and says that if you will follow me, you can have all of my righteousness and all of my goodness and all of my perfection. And Jesus says, I will lead you into the kingdom of God. If you're lost in this world and you don't know where you're going and you desire to go to the kingdom of God, follow Jesus Christ, give him your life, and he will take you there. Jesus Christ was God's final word. It is finished. We are healed. And when we follow Christ, he begins to lead us into the kingdom. I'm going to close with this scripture, and this drives home what I've been saying. In Romans 5, verses 18 through 21, it's basically uh, Paul saying how Jesus was able to reconcile the failure of Adam in every human. Romans 5, it says, Therefore, as one trespass, meaning the fall in the garden, led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads us to justification and life for all men. For as by the one's man, one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's, Jesus' obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, think about the book of Judges, grace abounded all the more. Over your life, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You understand Jesus so much more when you realize that he wasn't just a a random teaching man that came to the earth but that Jesus came as the fulfillment of everything that happened in the Old Testament. And that his radical, mind-blowing claim when he was talking about the gospel, which means the good news, is what Jesus was saying is that literally the kingdom is here. 
the kingdom that Israel always wanted to establish in the promised land and they couldn't do because they kept failing and failing and failing. And they'd set up a temple and it'd get destroyed and they'd create an empire and they'd get conquered. It was over and over and over again, right? And everyone was like, man, maybe God was just, didn't know what he was talking about when he promised to Abraham that he was gonna do this great work because they're not doing it. Jesus Christ came saying the kingdom is here and you and I can be a part of that kingdom. We live in a good world created by a good God, created for his glory and good purposes and happiness, and yet sin broke that, but God was faithful to remake it. And in every way that we fail, in Christ Jesus, on the cross and in the resurrection, we are renewed because God was being righteous on our behalf and giving it to us. You say, well, I failed so many times. It doesn't matter because Christ becomes your righteousness. You say, I need a judge, I need a deliverer, I need someone to lead me in this life. Christ is that person. Jesus Christ is everything. And as we read through the book of Judges and we continue to see the failure of God's people in the Old Testament, everything is building up to Jesus Christ. As we're on this journey together as a church, everything is building up to Easter when God is finally going to conquer sin and death and disobedience and provide the perfect deliverer of which you and I worship to this very day. Christ has come. Life is good. The book of Judges was tough. The wilderness was tough. Your life before Christ, it was tough. It was hard. But it's okay because God provided you a deliverer in Christ. Let's pray. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would deepen our understanding of your grace this morning. I pray for every person that is in this place right now, God. I pray, Lord, that if they think there's some sin in their life that is distancing them from you, if there's something they can't be forgiven for, or just any general inadequacy they feel in their life, God, I just pray that you would defeat that, Lord, and that you would give them the confidence of Jesus Christ. God, we all know that we don't measure up in this life. We know that we fall short in so many different ways. And the radical claim of Jesus Christ was that it was okay because he had come to be our perfection. I pray if there's anybody in this room, Lord, who is not following you, who is just wandering through life and and doesn't know uh, what the future holds, what eternity holds, how to find happiness in life, how to find... Um, a, an end to the guilt and shame that they feel. If there's any lostness, any anxiety, I just pray, Christ, that you would come in and that you would be the perfect deliverer for us this morning. Jesus, we confess that we need you, but we confess in happiness that you did come, that you have delivered us, and that the claim that we make is not that we're still waiting, but that Christ has come. He has defeated death and that he will come again to finish everything and to renew all of creation. We thank you for this gift. We thank you for unfathomable grace. We pray all these things in the name of the Father and the Son 
and the Holy Spirit. Amen.